0: Amen. Well, good morning, church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as you do, remember to pray for Pastor Pete and Stella. They're on their way, uh, probably not quite there yet, to India. Uh, Pastor Pete is giving the commencement address at uh, Solid Rock Seminary, and then we'll be teaching a class there this week. So remember to pray for them. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our gracious, loving Father, we thank you so very much for this opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ. Lord, to look at your word, to be challenged, perhaps to be convicted. And Father, I pray that each of us will strive to be doers of that word and not hearers only. Lord, we thank you for our pastor and pray for Pete and Stella as they are traveling to India that you'll give them a safe journey there, just a great time while they're there and you'll use Pastor Pete in a mighty and powerful way. We thank you, Lord, for your love your grace and your mercy, for it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Those of you here last week, remember, we introduced this text to give, and there was a a lot of response, and we really do appreciate that. For those of you who are not here or perhaps forgot about it or maybe you didn't get the number, uh, it's up there on the screen. And this gives you a very uh, easy, convenient way to present your tithes and offerings to the Lord here at the Bridge Church. And so, again, we want to just say thank you to all of you who responded to that. When we revealed our new name two years ago, we shared with you all a, if you will, a verbal identity for who we are. I'd like to review that with you this morning as we begin. In spite of the many differences that is obvious here as I look out over the congregation this morning, we all still have many things in common. One of these common denominators is that we're all on a journey called life. And your being here today tells me that On this journey, you want to become all that God has created you to be. Now, this journey isn't always going to be an easy one. There are going to be times where we're going to run into speed bumps and potholes, if you will. There are going to be breakdowns and roadblocks. Sometimes we're going to get completely off course or we may end up someplace where there's a dead end. It's times like that, times like this, that we really do need a bridge. Now, a bridge can take us over all of these pitfalls and put us back on course. A bridge can span the gap from where we are today to where we could be tomorrow. A bridge can even lift us up and move us forward in ways that we don't see until after we go over that bridge. Here at the Bridge Church, we want our church, your church, to be the place where you can experience all of that and even more together. Together we can experience the healing power that our God brings into our lives, that he wants to bring into our lives. We want to be able to show you how God can lift you up and take you beyond the areas of your lives that you feel or that you know are broken or weak. We believe that together we can discover the truth of Jesus that connects to every single area of our lives and simply makes our lives better. Jesus is the living bridge reconnecting us with God through His sacrificial love, His unending grace, and His abundant life. Today, I want us to focus on God's unending grace. And my prayer is that when we finish, that you'll have a better understanding and a deeper appreciation for what our God has done, what He wants to continue to do in our lives each and every day. So this morning, I'd like to begin in the Old Testament. Many of you here know that after Moses died, Joshua, Joshua who'd been one of the only two spies to recommend to the children of Israel, guys, we just need to be obedient and the promised land is going to be ours. God has promised it to us. This Joshua was chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel. As they got ready to conquer the city of Jericho, he sent two spies in to check out the situation. Posing as travelers, the Men found a place to stay with a prostitute named Rahab. But it wasn't very long before they were discovered, and the king of Jericho demanded that they be brought forward. Ignoring the danger to herself, Rahab decided to hide the men instead. So when the city officials came to her door, she lied to them, and she said, oh, man, th- those guys, they left right around dusk when we were getting ready to close the city gates. Rahab then returns to these men, and explains exactly why she had decided to spare their lives. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. You see, Rahab affirmed her belief that the Israelites, Jehovah God, had given the land of Canaan to them. And I think as you read the context, I think it becomes apparent that the promise that God gave to Abraham some 650 years before this time was common knowledge among at least most of the Canaanites. And they'd heard about the miracles as Rahab testified. They heard about all the miracles that God performed on behalf of the Israelites in delivering them from Egypt and all the military victories that they had secured to this point. And then in verse 11 again, when we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. But in spite of the fact that many of the Canaanites acknowledged the power of the Israelites' God, they still began to prepare for war. Rahab, however, chose to surrender and she asked for protection. So the two spies promised Rahab that they would spare her life, the lives of her family members, and everybody who would be there in her home. After the posse had been gone for a time, the two men climbed through a window and scaled down the outside of the city wall with a rope. But before leaving, they instructed Rahab to tie a scarlet cord in her window so the Israelites would know which apartment that they were to spare when it came time for the battle. And they told her, Anyone who's gathered there in your apartment, we're going to spare. Now, many of you know the account of this. Battle of Jericho, how God commanded the troops to march around the city for six days. Then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city once again. The priests would lead them, and they'd be blowing on the trumpets. When they heard a long blast on the trumpet, they were all to give a shout. And then, of course, we know from our perspective now, God called, caused the city walls to collapse. Now, I want you to think about this situation for a moment. Why go to all this trouble? Why had the troops march around the city for six days? Why not just march right up to the city gates, shout, and the Lord would cause the wall to fall and they'd go in and conquer the city. As I've thought about it, I think there's a really good chance that the Lord was giving the people of Jericho six days to think about their decision to fight His people. I believe that God would have honored 10,000 scarlet cords hanging in windows all over the city of Jericho. God would have been delighted if the city officials had thrown open the city gates, if they had chosen to abolish their disgusting and degrading customs that they were so prevalent to, if they had chosen to abandon their false gods, if they had chosen to acknowledge Jehovah God as the one true God. During this six-day march, any number of people could have come to Rahab and sought refuge in her home. The spies didn't limit their protection to Rahab's family alone. They guaranteed the safety of anyone who was gathered in that apartment with that red cord hanging in the window. At the end of the battle that day, nothing remained of Jericho except Rahab, her family, and their possessions. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. I want you to notice that last verse 25 has incredible significance for us today. A Canaanite prostitute who otherwise would have been stoned to death under the law became an accepted member of the community of the nation of Israel adopted into the family as part of God's covenant people. But Rahab's story doesn't end there. In Matthew's gospel it tells us that a young man named Salmon saw Rahab as a beautiful woman of faith and asked for her hand in marriage. Later on Rahab gave birth to a son they named Boaz who perhaps being influenced by the courage and the grace of his parents married a dispossessed widow from Moab named Ruth. Boaz and Ruth would later become the great grandparents of a boy named David who would go on to be one of Israel's greatest kings, a man prominent in the line of the Messiah, the king of kings, the savior of the world. You see, Rahab's story illustrates the wonder and the beauty of God's grace with an almost fairy tale drama, if you will. But for all of its feel-good qualities, and there are lots of them, Rahab's story is not so different, not so very different than yours and mine. You see, before Israel showed up at the city of Jericho, Rahab wore a label. Her parents, her neighbors, and her customers knew of her as Rahab the prostitute. Now, the people of Jericho may not have attached the same significance to that label that you and I do today, but I have no doubt that she felt the stigma of her occupation. And let me remind you that regardless of culture or religion... Women typically do not become prostitutes unless they are forced to. But when given the choice between dying with her pagan neighbors or accepting the grace of Jehovah God, she chose God's grace. As a result, she eventually received a new label, Rahab, mother of kings. In some ways, again, Rahab's story is our story because each and every one of us have labels. Even if it's a label of, our own choosing. You may have had your label concealed for most of your life, and you prefer that it remain a secret. Maybe you keep people from your past from people of your present. You avoid looking back because the memories and your labels may cause you some measure of shame. In fact, your labels may cause you to shy away from approaching God, getting involved in a ministry, or perhaps even following God's leading, that you become active and lead a ministry. Maybe your label is connected to one or more of the issues that you'll find listed on the back of your notes this morning. Isn't it interesting that when the spies offered to spare Rahab's life, they said absolutely nothing about her lifestyle? Abandoning her trade, if you will, was not part of the deal. Changing her life wasn't discussed at all. She acknowledged Jehovah God as the most powerful God and then decided to hide his servants and throw her lot in with them. That was it. Rahab's label was never, ever an obstacle to our God. And neither is yours. And that's why grace shines so brightly in our lives. This is the way of grace. And it has been from the very beginning. God never, ever, God never, ever, ever demands change as a condition for coming to Him. If you want to follow along in the outline, number one, grace is God's free and undeserved favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Look at that with me again. God, grace is God's free and undeserved favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. And as I look out this morning, as I think of myself, I think each and every one of us can directly relate to this, as we can with what David wrote in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. A writer named Sam Storms put it this way, grace has meaning only when men are seen as fallen, unworthy of salvation, and liable to eternal wrath. Grace does not contemplate sinners merely as undeserving, but as ill-deserving, It is not simply that we do not deserve grace, but we do deserve hell. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 3. But now, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Again, brothers and sisters, grace is not what you and I deserve. But it's all about what God chooses to give to us. The word in the Greek translated grace in the English New New Testament, charis from its very root, describes things that cause joy and pleasure and delight and goodwill and loving kindness and something that creates delight in the recipient or the observer. It is used particularly of a favor that is done without any expectation whatsoever of any kind of return. Now, as we reference this to our God, we have got to understand I believe it is absolutely essential. In the day and the time that we live in, it is absolutely essential. We must understand, as it relates to God, that it is the absolutely free expression of His loving kindness to everyone. It's all about His unearned and unmerited favor, especially the kind of favor that He bestows on sinners. Rick Warren put it this way. Through salvation, our past has been forgiven, our present is given meaning, and our future is secured. Now let's look into the New Testament. Many of you have at least heard the parable of the prodigal son, the younger of the two sons who demanded his inheritance from his father, who then squandered that inheritance living on the wild side, who then came back crawling to his dad, Asking for a job merely as a servant. Meanwhile, his older brother stayed home. Was faithful. Continued to work in the family business. And lived a good life. But when this younger son came back, when the prodigal came back, instead of rebuke, instead of rejection, his father ordered a celebration. His father gave him exactly what he did not deserve. And both of the boys were confused by that. The implication in this parable, I believe, is that their father was equally confused by their reluctance to celebrate. You see, there are two different stories here about two different things. One was a story of these two boys, these two sons, trying to get what they deserved. The younger son, Father, all I deserve is Just to work with your servants. The older son, but God, dad, I've been here and I've been faithful and I've worked hard. I deserve to get what's coming to me. The other is the story of a father whose son had finally come home. Both of the sons thought that their dad's response should reflect what they each deserved. They both thought that dad should take their behavior into account. They thought that their past performance should be considered. But dad's story wasn't about behavior. There weren't any whatabouts in his story. What the boys had or had not done was irrelevant. And so Jesus said this, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Talking to the older son. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead, he's alive again, he was lost, and now he's found. That was it. That's the end of the parable. That was the answer of why Jesus Christ welcomes sinners and fellowship with them without first requiring any changes in their lifestyle. You see, God celebrates first and foremost restored relationships. While we often want to make this issue about rehabilitation, God is all about restoration. When a sinner accepts God's unconditional offer of forgiveness, the celebration starts right then and there. It was man's break with God in the Garden of Eden that broke God's heart. So why should we be surprised to see that he always celebrates restoration? You see we know that we're sinners. We looked there earlier at Romans chapter 3. Everyone everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James chapter 2 says if I break one of God's commandments, one of God's laws, I'm just as guilty a sinner as if I broke every one of them. Romans 6, Paul tells us, the result of my sin, my willfully disobedient choices is that I will be separated from God for all eternity unless unless I have the good sense To accept a gift offered by God through his grace. And that gift is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God who made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for you and I. That we then could be made righteous in and through him. It's all about receiving a gift. You don't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't inherit it. It's a gift that God offers freely to everyone. And you see, if you're here this morning and you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, understand this. You were lost, and now you've been found. You were dead, and now you are alive. You were blind, and now you see. You said yes to God's offer of grace, to his offer of his perfect son in your place to pay the penalty for your sin. That's the best news that God will ever hear about you or about me. The problem that we face in our world today is that many people continue to search for a reason that God should love them, that in your story, or rather, but in your story, you're going to continue to find reasons why he shouldn't love you. Your old nature will be mighty certain to make certain that happens. So here's my suggestion. Give up your version of the story and embrace his. In his story, he doesn't love you because of what you've done. In his story, he loves you no matter what you've done. In his story, he could not love you more, and he will never love you less. It's a far better story. It's a true story. It's a story of grace, the grace of our great loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Number two, grace is God reaching down to people who are actively rebelling against him. Now, I don't want you to rebel against this statement. Please understand that we are always, unfortunately, well, maybe I should rephrase that. We are continuously rebelling against God, rejecting his leading, saying no to what God wants us to do. So when you think about grace, I want you to understand that grace is God reaching down to people who are actively rebelling against him. This is not a matter of some passive aggression or whatever. We're actively doing it. Notice what Solomon writes in Lamentations chapter 3. Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let's examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, me, all of us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, you, me, all of us, all of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, notice, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. Now also in the New Testament, John's gospel gives us a great picture of this truth about God's marvelous grace. Again, many of you may remember this story. The Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in the very act of adultery. The law said, stone her. They wanted to know what Jesus would say. And so the Scriptures tell us that the Lord wrote some things in the sand. He looked up. He wrote some more things in the sand. The crowd dispersed, and then Jesus turned to this woman, and she said, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, Jesus told this woman, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you exactly what you do not deserve, and that's grace. Jesus here didn't try to balance grace and truth, if you will. He gave her a full dose of both. This is so important. If you don't get this, you might very well fall into some diluted form of grace in your Christian life and in your outreach to other people, and that's really no grace at all. Number three in the outline grace is extended to everyone. Grace is extended to everyone. To everyone. There are no barriers whatsoever. Not racial barriers, not cultural barriers, not gender barriers, not economic barriers. There are no barriers whatsoever. God's grace is extended to everyone. Notice what Charles Spurgeon said about this. You'll find all true theology summed up in these two short sentences Salvation is all of the grace of God, damnation is all of the will of man. It's about choices and decisions. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Titus 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. God's grace brings the gift and the offer of salvation to every single individual in this planet. No exceptions whatsoever. And then that leads me to number four. Grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be earned, notice, in any way by anyone. It cannot be earned in any way by anyone. By anyone. A man died and he got to the gates of heaven. Peter was there to meet him. Peter said, sir, let me tell you how this all works. You need a 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things that you've done during the course of your life, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each and every one of those things, depending on how good it was. When you get a 100 points, you get in. Okay. He thought about it for a moment. He says, Well, I was married to the same woman for 53 years. I never cheated on her once, not even in my mind. Wow, that's wonderful, Peter said. That's worth three points. Three points. Wow. Okay. Well, I attended church all my life. I supported its ministry with my tithes and my offerings, my service. Terrific, says Peter. That's worth the point. One point. Golly, Peter, you're tough. All right, Peter, with some friends of mine at church, I I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic, Peter says. That's good for two points. Two points, a man cries out. At this rate, the only way I can get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter said, you're in. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul put it this way. You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like Rahab. There was no discussion about Her occupation. There was no, you need to change your life, Rahab, before you can come. No, it's all about God's grace. One anonymous individual wrote it this way. Grace is receiving God's absolute best when we deserve the absolute worst. And then many of you are familiar with what are the founding verses of our ministry here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace... Undeserved mercy or favor that you, that I, that every one of us have been saved through our faith. This is not from ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of anything that you can do or I can do, not of works, lest anyone can boast. We like to boast about the things that we can do. If you don't believe that, go on Facebook. This is a gift that God offers. There are no strings attached. There are no conditions attached. This is grace. Number five, grace and works are complete opposites. In the Old Testament, Jesus says that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. You can figure out how far that is. You let me know. Grace and works are so far apart. They are so diametrically opposed. There's no meeting point whatsoever. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it real clearly in Romans chapter 11. If it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. These are totally and completely incompatible. They do not mix. Dr. Harry Ironside put it this way. Grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor... But it is a favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. That's what we deserve. What we deserve is hell. Galatians 5 4, Paul said, You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, it doesn't say you've lost your salvation. If you trust the Christ as your Savior and you're still trying to be justified, Again, maybe some of the things in the back of your note page this morning, maybe those things are true of you. And you're still searching for some way, some rationalization, some justification, some reason why God should love you. Please don't. Because God says you'll fall from grace. You'll be separated from God's grace. Now, some of you this morning might be having some questions right now as countless others have throughout the ages. But, Pastor Bob, what about obedience and disobedience? What about somebody who is continuing to sin willfully? What about somebody who refuses to give up those bad habits? What about justice? What about repentance? It's an issue that the church has struggled with for many years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor of the Confessing Church in Germany, during the Second World War, actively preached against and actually was involved in several um, plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like the cheap jack wears. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, Without personal confession. You see, it's a tension that has dogged the church from the first century. A theologian by the name of Mark Talbot put it this way American Christianity tends toward a kind of easy believism. The gospel is often presented in a way that suggests that someone is saved as soon as he or she has, quote unquote, accepted Jesus as Savior. Even if that acceptance never manifests itself in the emotional and volitional recentering of the person's entire life. But this is actually the paradigm of the sort of dead and fruitless faith that the whole New Testament condemns. Again, it's this tension, if you will, that makes the subject of grace so confusing to so many people. It's this tension. That has caused pastors and theologians and the people in the pew through the centuries to add and subtract from their concept of grace. There's a little voice inside many people that screams out, No, it cannot be that easy. But, church, as much as we think, as much as we may hear people say that we have to qualify grace, it can't be qualified. I know. Trust me, 40-plus years in the ministry, a lot of counseling sessions. I know it can be frustrating at times. The tension that there is between law and grace, justice and grace, fairness and grace, and all of this was a big part of the first century struggle with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so join us next week as we look at grace. It really does work. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving Father, I pray that no one will leave this auditorium this morning not being absolutely certain of their relationship with you. Lord, we believe the scriptures are clear that charis, grace, is the completely undeserved, unmerited, unearnable favor that you have chosen because of your great love to bestow upon a fallen world. Father, I pray that we do not allow ourselves to be sidetracked or distracted or confused by the the loud noise that comes from seemingly everywhere. No, it cannot. It cannot be. That easy, Lord. I pray that we never forget that it caused that it cost you your only Son. That He paid a horrific price to provide to us unmerited favor to pay the penalty for our sins to give us not only the gift of eternal life but to give us a quality of life here and now that far surpasses anything the world can ever offer. Father, I pray that we are not shy about sharing this message. I pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen us all that we will be, as Isaiah says, iron sharpening iron with each other. And remember that we have the greatest news that the world needs to hear. Father, we ask your blessing now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I pray, Lord, this can be a time of reflection for each and every one of us. Our relationship with you, our service to you, our commitment to you, not to be saved, but because we are. Because we are part of the family of God. And family has responsibility. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the gift of grace. For it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Our issues are going to come forward as we celebrate communion this morning. One of the two ordinances that Jesus gave to the New Testament church. As the elements are passed by, I would ask each of you to take and hold on to it, and we'll all partake together. If you're not a formal member of our church, but you know Jesus Christ as Savior, then we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, because the only scriptural requirement is that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Again, as I mentioned, there are many people who send out many confusing messages about grace about our relationship with God and about what our responsibilities within the life, the Christian life might be. As I shared in our verbal identity, here at The Bridge, we want to be the bridge to help each and every one of us to get from where we are today to where God wants us to be. God definitely has places that He wants us to be. God definitely wants us to engage the world around us. Because again, we have the greatest news. I know the word gospel means good news, but it's not just good news, it's the greatest news ever, the best news ever. And people are going to be skeptical, people are going to be reluctant, and people are still going to be sinners. But our responsibility, our privilege, our opportunity is to share this great news so that people can understand where they are as a sinner separated from God with no hope of ever being able to earn their way into heaven and where God wants them to be. And that is, I'm offering salvation as a gift. All you have to do is reach out and take it. And when you do... I guarantee I will save you. I will give you the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to give you power, to give you strength, to give you wisdom, to give you discernment. I will enable you. And as we're going to see next week, grace, it really does work in many different ways. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, blessed it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me in the same way <clears throat> he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me And he told his disciples, for as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. We reflect back on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we look forward to the impact that God desires for that to have in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, what a very special joy it is to be able to share this time of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, to share this very special remembrance of what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross at Calvary. Father, to know with absolute certainty (coughs) that we have eternal life, that when this difficult and trying life is all over, that we are going to enjoy a peaceful and blissful and worshipful experience in heaven with you. Father, in the meantime, I pray that we do not forget that there are, there are a lot of things that we need to do that we can do, that you have empowered us to do. And I pray, Lord, as we have reflected this morning on, again, your death, burial, and resurrection, that that reminds us of this very powerful truth and that we choose we choose to be faithful. We choose to be different from the world. We choose to be obedient. We thank you for your love and all of your many blessings. Again, Father, we pray for Pastor Pete and Stella as they travel, and pray you keep them safe, that you'll use Pastor in a mighty way as he speaks to the graduates and their families, as he teaches during the course of this week. Pray you bring them home safely at the end of this time. And I pray, Father, for us as a church that we will remember our responsibility to be faithful and obedient in all that you've called us to do. For it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.